This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Lindsay Sadlu. I use she, they pronouns, and I work as a field director with Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. In celebration of International Women's Day, X-Ray is hosting 12 hours of programming highlighting women and those with intersecting experiences of marginalization. Amplify Women is a time to bring conversations centering women into sharper focus, with particular attention to BIPOC, trans, queer, immigrant, poor, working class, and disabled women. Between now and 7 p.m., you will be hearing some of Portland's most impactful community leaders, educators, activists, artists, and professionals tell their stories to educate, empower, and inspire change. So I'm here talking about we are in the midst of a full-on dismantling of reproductive rights and body autonomy at large. In the next few weeks, Idaho is on track to pass a Texas-style six-week abortion ban that will allow individuals to sue abortion providers for up to $20,000 if a family member receives an abortion after six weeks. In June, the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization will likely lead to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and 50 years of precedent protecting the constitutional right to abortion. This past week, Texas passed a bill targeting trans youth and their families. It is important to know that anti-abortion and anti-trans legislation are two sides of the same coin. As abortion justice advocates, we believe that body autonomy is sacred and we'll continue organizing alongside our trans siblings until we see change. So for the next hour, I'm going to be speaking with three leaders within the reproductive rights and justice space. My friend and boss, Ann Doe, Executive Director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. Uh, my local hero, Kulpana Krishnamurthy, Program Director at Where We're Together. And the amazing young Arna Dixit, an alum of Planned Parenthood's Teen Council Program and current student at New York University, who was recently featured as one of Teen Vogue's Young People Shaping Tomorrow. Our conversation today is going to be about the future of abortion access and asking the big question, how do we envision a world beyond Roe v. Wade? In this discussion, I first want to invoke the work of Mariama Kaba, an organizer, educator, and prison abolitionist. Kaba says that hope is a discipline. So as we stare down the face of anti-abortion and anti-trans lawmakers, weaponizing their power against our sacred right to bodily autonomy, I want to center on how we as organizers, advocates, and practitioners integrate hope as an everyday practice. So my first question for the panel today, and you can respond in whatever order, what does abortion justice mean to you? And how did you come to those values? Whoever's ready to start, kick us off. Uh, hey, thanks so much for having uh, me join the conversation, Lindsay. My name is Kalpana, and I use she and her pronouns. Um, you know, I come to the conversation about abortion justice, I think, from a lot of different entry points. Um, one is I, the majority of my family still lives in India, and I grew up being able to see how the ability to decide when and how you want to become a parent and how large your family is, was a fundamental, it was fundamental to how those families did and whether they had the resources they needed, whether they were healthy, whether they um, were able to provide for those kids everything they hoped and wished. And so it was very clear to me really early on that women and folks who can get pregnant should be able to decide when and how they become parents. And I came to the work of abortion because I just, I didn't, I fundamentally understood that 
if you weren't ready to be a parent, like you know that decision best, full stop. And nobody should be able to interrupt in that decision. Your parents, policymakers in Texas, the Trump administration, because they refused to let the aid organization in your country use its resources to provide for abortions, whatever it was, that that fundamental decision belonged to the pregnant person who knew they weren't ready to be a parent. So for me, abortion justice um, combines the, the piece of can you actually get an abortion with having the information that allows you to determine for yourself if that's the right decision for you at this time, and also having a culture that doesn't shame or stigmatize you for making that decision. So I see it as much bigger than just can you get to a clinic. I see it as having the agency in your own life to make the decision, in your own culture to make the own, that decision, and having a broader culture that supports your decision without undermining or questioning or making you feel shamed or stigmatized for whatever choice you made. Thank you for that. I'm going to pass it on to Anne. I really, um, this is Anne with Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. I use she, her pronouns. I, what really resonated with me, which is sort of the germ of what brings me to this work, is um, the word agency that Kopana came forward with, right? So my parents are Vietnamese immigrants. There's a 12-year age difference between me and my sister. And there's this really hilarious anecdote that she tells um, folks about how she was in poking around in my mom's medicine cabinet as a seven-year-old and she finds my mom's diaphragm and she's like, oh, it's a tiny little hat. This is like great, right? Um, but I was respecting, I was reflecting on that story as I was moving more into doing this work. And I really was struck by how essential access to family planning was to my family. So in that 12-year age gap, my parents fled a war-torn country with their small child, came to a new country, um, established roots, sponsored my aunts, uncles, and cousins to come and join in this country, and grew enough stability to be able to support that family network and that community. And so, so much hinged upon the agency and the ability to choose when they were ready to have a child so that they could support. And it wasn't just about my family, my nuclear family. It was about a community writ large. And the other piece that really struck me about that was how having that germ of agency and control, particularly for a family who had experienced such a violation of agency and control, both in their individual lives of being forcibly displaced and in their country and an imperialistic intrusion, it really is so fundamental, right? Our body autonomy, our agency, our grounding and being able to make our decisions about our bodies um, for ourselves, for our families is foundational. And it extends beyond us as individuals to an overall understanding of how we um, operate in different systems, especially in different systems of oppression. So for me, it is this multi-layered dimension of just the you know, essential aspects of having autonomy over your body and agency and being able to control your reproductive destiny and extends into the pragmatic of how do I care for my community and for my people? And how can I be best equipped to be able to do that and trusted to be able to do that? Um, so I think the agency and being able to do that with agency and without stigma and with support and affirmation um, is sort of the world that I work towards that I want, that we support, we support affirm people's decisions 
in their lives that they know are best for them. Um, yeah, I would just like to, you know, echo everything Copeland and said, um, once again, my name's Arna, she, her pronouns. I think the reason that I'm involved in abortion justice was definitely because um, I started getting involved with Planned Parenthood's Teen Council and learning about like the importance of sex education and the involvement of youth in like reproductive and sexual justice. Um, and for me, honestly, the most important part is just like bodily autonomy um, and how like everyone, regardless of you know who they are, should have the choice and the autonomy and the ability to access healthcare. Um, and so I think that for me is the most important thing, just like that base choice and the ability to access. Thank you all so much for sharing with some such generosity um, your personal stories. Something that I think is really special that we all have in common on this panel is that we're all first and second generation. Um, and just wanted to shout that out as a centering, um, something that I've heard as a through line in all of our stories. My next question is for you, Kulpana. So Roe v. Wade has upheld the constitutional right to obtain an abortion since 1973. But Black, Indigenous, and other women of color have been ringing the alarm for a long time that the legal right to obtain an abortion has never ensured access. And I think I heard that in your intro as well. So can you talk to us about the power of Roe v. Wade um, and also its limitations? Absolutely. I'd like to start by saying I'm not a lawyer and I don't play one on TV. And I, you know, have not actually read the Roe versus Wade decision. So with all those caveats, what I can say, right, is I agree with absolutely, Lindsay, how you framed the question. Roe versus Wade guarantees the constitutional right to privacy and the right to an abortion, that that decision was a private decision an individual person could make. And that happened in 1973 after much advocacy um, for many, many years. And I do want to shout out Oregon because in 1969, Oregon legalized abortion and was one of the six states where abortion was legal prior to the passage of Roe versus Wade. And let's be clear, that effort was led by Senator Betty Roberts, who was the only woman serving in the 30-person Oregon Senate at the time. So once we had legal access in 1973. That didn't mean, however, that this was now something covered by private insurance. It didn't mean that, that this was something that you could find easily and that there were a lot of people providing abortion. It still meant you had this patchwork infrastructure where some people knew how to provide abortions and other people didn't know how to provide abortions. This is still not being taught very broadly in medical schools in 1973, right? The procedure of abortion itself. So there is already in 1973, a ginormous gap between who can access abortion with this legal right. And all that did was make sure you wouldn't go to prison if you had an abortion and the doctor who provided it wouldn't go to prison if you had an abortion. It didn't somehow magically create a thousand abortion providers on the day that Roe versus Wade passed. And I think sometimes we forget that context, that this took real time to become a healthcare procedure that people could access, and that that access was always uneven because of how our healthcare system has been set up, right? I think, you know, through the 1970s, um, we started seeing more access, there was more training, there were more doctors providing, there were you know, conversations about how to get not just doctors to be able to provide, but nurses and any kind of healthcare provider. You know, I'm proud uh, of the amazing work that Planned Parenthood does every day to make sure that so many different kinds of healthcare providers in Oregon can provide abortion. This is something that you can get done with a nurse 
um, practitioner, with a doctor, um, with any number of kinds of uh, folks that are um, healthcare providers in our state because Oregon has fought every restriction to limit who can provide abortion in our state. So that is to say that it was never um, widely available. And then we started seeing the, the attacks in the 1980s and 1990s, and we started seeing multiple things happening, right? I, I want to name the very first and most major attack around abortion was really the Hyde Amendment in 1976, right? So in 1976, um, the Hyde Amendment was passed, and it's a policy that bans the federal use of funds to pay for abortion care, except when the pregnancy endangers the life of the pregnant person or if the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. This amendment has been added to the annual appropriations budget every year since 1976. And what it means is that people who receive Medicaid, um, people who receive Medicare, people who um, are part of the Children's Health Insurance Program, people who get their federal their benefits through the federal government, so federal employees, Indian Health Services, people in the Peace Corps, right? None of these folks are able to use um, the resources, the federal dollars, in order to pay for abortion services. Now, here in Oregon, we have clearly made a decision to pursue a different route. So states can decide to fund that abortion work, and Oregon has made that decision since the 1980s, but it's only 16 states that do that. So for the vast majority of people in the United States, the Hyde Amendment means that they cannot get or use public funded dollars in order to um, get that uh, abortion that they've decided is right for them. Thank you for that incredibly thorough response. And even though you're not a lawyer, you could you had me convinced. <laughs> and my next question is for you. So it's now the first day of March. It's 2022. The Supreme Court, as well as circuit courts, are stacked with conservative judges. This moment we're in, not to be like a conspiracy theorist, but it's just literally a culmination of decades-long strategy from the GOP. So, Anne, can you talk us through how we got here to this moment? Yeah, I want to ground us sort of in the conversation that Kopana first led with around uh, this being decades long, right? And so right when the constitutional right to an abortion was being established, you had Henry Hyde putting barriers in place for folks with low income, which disproportionately impacted um, Black and Brown individuals. And I think that when we're looking at what the, the history of the anti-abortion movement, you can't look at the history of the anti-abortion movement without also connecting it to the overall sexual and reproductive oppression of Black and Brown communities. Um, and an explicit and intrinsic link to white supremacy. Um, and it's clear today when we have Proud Boys joining anti-abortion activists to protest outside of our Planned Parenthood Salem Health Center, but it has also been true for decades. Um, and throughout the time that there has been an anti-abortion movement, it has been deeply connected to a white supremacist movement too. I think when you're talking about a decades long sort of political strategy, what we've seen is the anti-abortion politicians, primarily from the Republican Party, have really tried to use abortion as a wedge issue to create something that they could utilize as a political tool. Um, and that really took off, you know, in the 80s when Reagan was courting the right evangelical vote and really continued on with Newt Gingrich in the compact um, with America. Uh, and looking at trying to 
make abortion into as much of an inflammatory, controversial topic as possible as a matter of political expediency. And the way that they really used inflammatory rhetoric and tried to paint abortion in the most inflammatory ways possible to rally a base. And that really led us to this moment in 2010 around redistricting and the gerrymandering of a lot of different states so that eventually our, the legislatures in states were no longer really reflective of what the populace and their values were. Right. We had a lot of Republicans getting swept into the state legislature who began passing a ton of anti-abortion restrictions. And we saw the number of anti-abortion restrictions really tick, uptick, and skyrocket in 2011 after the 2010 census um, and redistricting exercise. And we saw that there was like a, a really trying to chew away at abortion access from around the edges during that time. So there were restrictions aimed at mandatory waiting periods. So making folks have to wait a mandatory amount of time, 72 hours, not based on any medical science before they're able to access their abortion care. Targeted regulations of abortion providers. Abortion is one of the safest medical procedures that you can have done. And yet many states require abortion clinics to have hallways that would accommodate an ambulance um, size gurney, um, which is really expensive. And the whole point is to be able to bankrupt or to um, close down clinics, admit rights, requiring providers to have admit rights to a local hospital when, again, abortion is one of the safest medical procedures. So none of these restrictions are aimed at actually protecting patients. All of these restrictions are aimed at making it as difficult as possible for patients to be able to access the care that they needed. And then we had Trump elected, and he appointed Kavanaugh, and he stole a seat um, from Obama and installed Gorsuch. And the, the tilt of the tide in the Supreme Court was really clear. And what we saw in 2019 was a shift from abortion restrictions um, that chewed away at the edges to a full frontal assault on abortion rights. So we saw bans passing that were flagrantly unconstitutional because our Supreme Court time and again over the last 50 years, starting with Roe versus Wade and again in the 90s with Casey versus Planned Parenthood, has consistently affirmed that an individual has the right to terminate a pregnancy before viability. And that has never been up for debate. And all of a sudden we were seeing all sorts of bans that were well before viability. And the whole goal was to be able to escalate something to the Supreme Court to push us in the moment that we are in right now. And with Texas's, we've seen it really up the ante, right? We have the 15-week abortion ban that's being heard in the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will rule on in June that came out of Mississippi. And Mississippi's Solicitor General has asked for nothing less than a complete overturning of Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. So it's not unclear that this effort is to really push to ban abortion and to allow states to ban abortion. But then you have this other piece that's coming out of Texas where they're trying to evade judicial review. They structure their six-week abortion ban so that courts wouldn't be able to review it. And they've established this bounty hunter model where members of communities are incentivized to police each other and in order to sue either providers or people who are helping people get abortions are able to be sued by people in Texas and people outside of Texas for $10,000. And again, returning to the racist roots of the anti-abortion movement and of sexual and reproductive oppression, those, those bounties echo the sort of fugitive 
um, slave bounties of yesteryear, right? Where you are able to target folks that are rooted in this like really oppressive, incredibly um, racist roots of wanting to target and incentivize the targeting of others through bounties. And we are seeing that spread to other places like Idaho. And so we are in this really huge inflection moment that has taken decades to set up. But I think that the escalation and the intensity that we've seen in the last year, um, even for folks who are doing this work day in, day out, has been pretty breathtaking. Um, And laws like Texas's SBA are especially cruel because they target your community. So for time immemorial, as long as people were getting pregnant, they were also figuring out how to terminate their pregnancies when they um, weren't ready to have children. And they had community to help them figure out how to do that. Um, And so Texas's SBA in targeting that community really seeks to further isolate and stigmatize abortion patients uh, in a, a particularly cruel way, making it so that people are afraid to even have conversations with their trusted loved ones for fear of putting them into legal jeopardy. Thank you for all of that. That was incredibly dense and you just shared a lot of information. And I think something that is really resonating with me is understanding and unpacking, and I've learned a lot of this from Kulpana and Forward Together's work as well, is the history of policing nationally, especially in Oregon, uniquely in Oregon, and just the tactics of reproductive oppression through controlling our bodies. And and as your personal story laid out, agent like personal agency and community agency writ large. And something I've been seeing from our state senator, Akasha Lawrence Spence, is understanding that poverty is a policy choice that lawmakers craft and you know choose to do things like continue to implement the Hyde Amendment year in and year out. And I think that the current landscape of reproductive justice is no exception to that. There's constant crafting of policy, budget decision-making that prevents people from being able to practice their full agency and body autonomy. But Oregon is kind of situated in the unique space. I heard you talking about Texas Senate Bill 8. I heard you talking about Idaho, who is about to go dark as far as abortion access. And can you talk to us about what, if, and how the abortion access landscape could change for Oregonians? So we know that Oregon is has done a lot in terms of advancing reproductive health policy, but we still have a long ways to go. We have people in Oregon who are impacted by the Hyde Amendment who are not able to access abortion care because of their federal insurance. That includes um, folks who rely on Indian Health Services, um, federal employees, folks who are part of um, the military and their families. But we also know that there are huge geographic barriers, that we don't have abortion providers in every corner of the state, and that a lot of the providers are clustered along the I-5 corridor. And that has effectively meant that folks who live in Eastern Oregon in particular have to go to Boise or to health centers in Idaho in order to access their abortion care. So should uh, Idaho pass a six-week abortion ban, which we anticipate that they will soon, that means that both folks in Idaho and folks living in Eastern Oregon will have an essential part of care cut off from them. They'll have to travel much longer distances, take time off of work, get accommodations, maybe childcare in order to access the care that they need. The New York Times did an analysis of what the different abortion bans would do in terms of impacting access. And in their map for Oregon, they said that Eastern Oregonians could see an up to 35% decrease in access 
um, in the Guttmacher Institute in looking at just even a 15 week abortion ban um, going into effect, uh, estimated that this, our state could see an up to 234% increase in out-of-state patients. So this goes in both directions. Oregonians needed to travel longer distances in order to get care and also our health centers having to accommodate a lot more patients. And we've seen in places like Oklahoma that have been inundated by Texas patients that folks in Oklahoma are having a hard time getting appointments because of the rise in demand. And so I think there is um, it's incumbent upon us to be supporting our abortion providers from Planned Parenthood Columbia Willamette to Planned Parenthood Southwestern Oregon and Lilith, um, OHSU Kaiser, to be able to really um, bolster the provider network to be able to meet that moment. Seriously, especially as we're in the midst of a global pandemic and asking the question, what does it mean to learn to live in a global pandemic where the impact is disproportionately on our frontline healthcare workers and staffing shortages. This is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host, Lindsay Sadlu, and I'm joined today by Kulpana Krishnamurthy, Ann Doe, and Arna Dixit, and together we're talking about the future of abortion access. So my next question is for you, Arna. Not to gas you up too much, but you were just in Teen Vogue as one of the young people shaping tomorrow, so let's not forget how cool you are. Arna, before you graduated high school just last June, you logged many, many hours teaching sex ed in middle and high school classes through Planned Parenthood's Teen Council program. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that experience, what you were what you were up to and what that was like? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, Teen Council to me was definitely like the most impactful thing I've done like thus far in my career or my life. Um, I did it for three years and was super impactful because I Obviously, I got to talk to my peers about topics that I was passionate about, um, and I myself just got to learn more. I started off with Teen Council mainly for like the consent education part of things because I'm super passionate about sexual violence advocacy. And then, but as I started like you know spending more time and learning more curricula, I learned more about like reproductive healthcare and like the importance of birth control and access to birth control and just all of that kind of stuff. And yeah, overall, it's just been like a very important experience for me, like, because now I like think of sex education as something I'm super passionate about. I have a podcast that I run relating to it. Um, and if you would have asked me like three years ago, like, oh, are you like super into like sex education, particularly, I probably would have said no. But now I see like the importance of like, just, you know, having young people being empowered in their identities and their sexuality and their ability to access healthcare is just super important to me. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm definitely super thankful to have had the experience of teen council and to have learned so much. And I like definitely want to continue um, spreading those same messages surrounding like comprehensive sexual education, as well as like reproductive healthcare. That's amazing. Um, so something that I remember as being incredibly awkward during my high school, middle and high school sex ed experience was the anonymous question box, which it was only embarrassing because it was our teachers reading it. So as a peer-to-peer sex educator, um, you got to field a lot of those anonymous questions. So what were some of the common questions that uh, middle and high schoolers would ask you as teen council members, if you remember them? Um, 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I think we got a lot of questions on masturbation because I feel like at that age, one of the most like, you know, accessible forms of exploring your sexuality is masturbation and self-exploration. And so we had a lot of questions about that and just kind of like the value surrounding like that. Like, is it okay? Is it not okay? Because obviously um, a lot of times in our society, there's kind of like that fear tactic used and like, you know, the taboo surrounding sexual exploration Um, And a lot of questions about like the efficiency of birth control and like what works best for someone Um, and general questions about like the usage of condoms and dental dams. And yeah, it was like those were some of our most common questions. Um, We never really fielded many questions on abortion, you know, just to bring that up since that's what we're talking about here. But that's also because Planned Parenthood's like Teen Council we weren't allowed to talk about abortion um, in the classroom because, you know, just because of like state laws and like the education laws, um, since it was a public, it was mostly public schools that we were teaching at, there was like a chance that like Planned Parenthood could like lose its funding because it would be seen as like pushing abortion on young people. Um, so we never really got any questions about abortion, but we would sometimes get questions like, why didn't, why didn't you talk about abortion? So, yeah. That is really interesting. I didn't realize that was a a rule as part of your teaching in classes. And Arna, if I'm remembering correctly, you're from Beaverton, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, same. Mm. (laughs) Um, So back in 2019, we had to confront some parent pushback from some extremist anti-Planned Parenthood and anti-reproductive health groups. Kulpana, you're from Beaverton as well. What? (laughs) we have so much in common here (laughs) I love that Washington County represent anyway yeah there's a big pushback um, from Beaverton community members really questioning the role of Planned Parenthood um, providing sex education in schools and I think something that we're seeing more and more is the attacks that school board members face as the ones who implement comprehensive sex education policy in districts So it's not just, you know, the hot button topic of critical race theory and being taught in schools, which we won't even get into that, but the mass culture war is happening at the school board level. It sounds like you were on the front lines of that as someone who was teaching in schools directly. Yeah, definitely. I feel like especially with the pushback, it's super important to have that kind of peer-to-peer education um, because not, you know, so that even like as a peer educator, I was a resource in the school. So it's always almost easier to ask your peers for further questions um, and for even just like further resources than it is to like ask someone who's like an adult in an education system that doesn't really comprehensively want to teach you about those topics. That is so real. Um, Arna, can you tell us um, from that experience and also from Dirty Talk, the podcast that you run with two of your teen council alum, um, what challenges are young people facing? As our resident young person on this panel, what challenge are young people facing in terms of reproductive health care and access? Yeah, definitely. I feel like one of the main challenges is that young people often don't even realize or recognize like how easily they can access reproductive health care. Like sometimes, I mean, coming from Oregon, a state which is relatively very good with like their access laws and like how they work that stuff. Um, You know, like a lot of people even back in Oregon just didn't know that like as a high schooler, you can 
technically get birth control for like completely free because of like funding laws um, and just not knowing like where do you go for such stuff. So I feel like just there's just like that general unawareness about the fact that you do have the ability to access that healthcare. Um, and other than that, I feel like there's a lot of just, I feel like parental scare and like scare of like, who's going to find out that I'm doing this because as young people, um, especially, you know, as minors or even as like, not as minors, like just the stigma of like our families or our cultures can really affect us from like accessing, um, areas of like reproductive healthcare. And so I think that those two are the biggest, like the not even knowing like what avenues you have present to you and then that kind of fear of pushback from your families and stuff like that. That completely resonates with me as a kid that grew up uh, in an Iranian American home. I just didn't have conversations about sexual health, sex education, even though my parents could not have been more supportive, but it was just one of those like, don't ask, don't talk about it kind of issues um, so I didn't even realize that there was a Planned Parenthood just a couple miles from the house that I grew up until I first needed birth control um, when I moved back from college. So that all definitely resonates with me, Arna. So all of us have spent our adult lives, if not our whole lives, with Roe versus Wade being the law of the land. So my question for all of you is how do we even begin to envision a future beyond Roe? Um, thanks. This is Anne again with Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. I think we've held a lot of threads. One, that Roe was never enough, right? And Kulpana really laid out what the barriers have been, the systematic, purposeful barriers have been put in place in order to prevent folks, especially low-income folks, from being able to access abortion care. So we know that Roe has always been the floor and not the ceiling. And as we're thinking about what a potentially post-Roe landscape looks like, I think we have to hold both that, you know, protecting the legal right to an abortion is incredibly important and also pushing beyond legality and rights to really thinking about accessibility and intersecting issues. You brought up earlier today in your introduction how 2021 was a record-breaking year, not just for anti-abortion legislation, but also also anti-trans legislation. And we're seeing how um, LGBTQ youth, particularly trans youth, are being targeted at the school board level um, with folks targeting those youth both explicitly around bathrooms or through curriculum with comprehensive sex education. Or if you're Greg Abbott, you're literally going after their parents for being supportive and um, and affirming of their children and their identities. And so I think that as we look at a future beyond Roe, we need to be connecting all of the dots um, in the ways in which all of these issues of bodily autonomy and agency and access to healthcare are connected and, and think of it in a holistic sort of way. In 2017, Oregon passed the Reproductive Health Equity Act. Um, which codified the right to an abortion in statute. And I just want to pause, but like Kulpana already talked about how Oregon was one of the first like states to not make abortion illegal, but it took us until 2017 to codify that right into statute. And that I think was also a big reaction to Donald Trump being elected to the president's office, to the administration which in this moment seems incredibly timely and a lot of forethought, but it's also kind of wild to think about how we have not 
protected or valued or prioritized people's agency and bodily autonomy and protecting those things in our laws and in our policies as a society writ large. But we know that while abortion will remain legal here in Oregon because of that law, that people still won't be able to access it. I have a friend who serves on NWAF's board and was manning the call center recently, and she was texting me, and she's like, it just drives me up the wall that people who need health care can't access their health care, and that I'm on the phone with them trying to figure out how much of their travel we can pay for, how much of their procedure we can pay for to get the care that they need. So NWAF is the Northwest Abortion Access Fund, and I highly recommend folks check out their website. And I also want to shout out all of our abortion providers. So March 10th is Abortion Provider Appreciation Day. Other groups like the Cascade Abortion Services Collective, am I getting the S correct there? Cascade Abortion Support Collective. Support Collective. I just did their volunteer training. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. So folks can, I mean, as we're looking at this moment, again, in thinking beyond legality and then to thinking about mutual aid and support, there are so many different ways for folks to be involved, not just politically, because y'all, governor's races in the states are going to matter way more than ever before. Like when the Supreme Court issues a decision um, in June that will likely gut our constitutional right to abortion, where you live is going to matter a ton. It already did, and it's going to matter even more. But in in addition to being involved at the ballot and paying attention to who your reproductive health champions are and making sure that those folks um, get elected to office and that we're holding our, our elected officials accountable for passing policies that expand and protect access to reproductive health care, we should also be you know, doing trainings to learn how to be support networks, giving people rides, supporting abortion providers and talking about abortion in a way that destigmatizes it because we know that one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And so this is incredibly common. So there are a lot of different ways that we need to be addressing this in all of the sort of, in our conversations, in the way that we support different organizations um, and how we show up in our advocacy and political spaces so that we can build a future beyond Roe together. Um, And we can envision what it should look like, which is what it has not looked like for decades since 1973, um, and try to work towards towards that future. Kulpana, what about you? What does a post-Roe world mean to you? Well, I definitely co-sign on everything that Anne said. Um, I think, you know, a post-Roe future for me will also include a more important place for self-managed abortions. And I want to just make sure that we're defining a term for our listening audience, right? A self-managed abortion is an abortion that takes place outside of contact with the traditional medical system, right? It might use a medication regimen. It might use manual means. It might use herbs or traditional cultural means inside of a community. And um, a self-managed abortion might be done in one's own home by themselves. It might be done with the support of friends, family members, or partners. And so I think that self-managed abortion care is going to become a more important part of our conversation. So I want to come back to that and stick with that because that was a pretty radical idea to me. And we've been, I've been lucky enough to be in a space where you've talked about self-managed abortion care before. And it's a pretty radical idea for me that a medical space, a doctor's office, a health clinic might not actually be the safest or most supportive place for someone to receive health care. 
So can you talk to us about that? What does it mean to unpack kind of our idea of like medical care and abortion? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, this was also, Lindsay, a radical, like I'm my, both my parents are doctors. I have had a lot of experience in the medical system. um, And my kids have had a lot of contact with the medical system. I'm not a hypochondriac, but like I trust the medical system to take care of my needs and I've been able to advocate for myself. And I know that is not the experience that so many Black, Indigenous, folks of color, trans folks, gender nonconforming folks have with our U.S. medical care system. There are too many ways that our doctors don't hear our voices, don't respect our voices, that the medical system is not set up for there to be agency and control located with the patients. And for me, self-managed care is all about flipping that conversation. It's about recognizing that the person who um, has decided they are ready to terminate a pregnancy can do so on their own safely, and they should be able to make the choice about who gets to be involved. And they may feel absolutely that they just going to a clinic. Great. That should be the choice available to them. They may want to try using um, herbal or traditional methods in their own home. And if that works, great. And if they also then need backup medical care, also great. What, however someone decides to, that they are terminating their pregnancy, we should not be in the business of criminalizing, of policing, of attempting to arrest, because that is just um, not the way that we want to be approaching, right, self-managed care. I think the other thing is for those of us that are used to thinking about all obstetric and gynecological care as happening in hospitals or in traditional healthcare settings, this is just a, you know, it's, it kind of makes my, it, it like expands my brain in this kind of explosive way. But I have to remember that the vast majority of births in this hospital didn't happen in hospitals until the 1940s, right? That there was an effort to buy the American Medical Association and other physicians and medical providers to take the traditional knowledge of communities in birthing and supporting the reproductive health issues of individual people and communities and medicalize that process in order to make money. Thank you, capitalism. So if we remember that so many of our communities for thousands, literally thousands of years had this knowledge in our bodies, in the plants around us, and in our communities around us, um, there is a way for us to have and to resource one another and community um, in a way that is safe and effective. Again, if that's the choice that feels comfortable for you. That's amazing. And what I'm gathering and synthesizing from that is that People deserve to be trusted to know what's best for them, their bodies, and their futures. And like, whoa, what a concept. But it is a stretch, right? Like it, like the idea of self-managed abortion might feel extreme or might feel terrifying to some people, but really it's centering on the values that and we know what's right by our bodies. And we also trust or hopefully have the abundance in our life of people that we trust to help make those decisions with us, whether that's family, whether that's your faith leader, whether that is a physician, um, your partner, your loved ones, your, your aunties, they're there for you, hopefully in a, in a um, caring and supportive environment where we can practice that interdependence and mutual aid. That's right. And Lindsay, I think, you know, self-managed abortion may look different for different people and a safe and effective ways of managing, uh, self-managing an abortion could include um, self-sourcing abortion pills 
and taking them at home or wherever someone feels safe and comfortable with, again, the support of a loved one if they want. It may be having an abortion um, supported by a home provider or a doula who has knowledge and training. Um, and it may be having an abortion that is mostly self-managed, but may also begin or end with support from a physician or another licensed provider. So again, um, there is just a, a really important range of options in self-managed care. And uh, we want to make sure, you know, there, there are many reasons a person might prefer to end their pregnancy at home, right? It may be that it allows them to have privacy and they get to choose who they want to be with them and also what cultural practices they want to involve in that process. It may allow a person to control the location and the timing um, that better works for their family and their work schedule. Um, it may be more affordable than other options. And it may also be an option for people who confront barriers to receiving um, care at a clinic, right, which includes a lot of medically unnecessary restrictions that are put in place by anti-abortion politicians. It may include having to confront protesters that are there to shame and stigmatize you. So there are lots of reasons why a person um, might want to end their pregnancy um, using self-managed means. And we don't know what those circumstances are. Um, but I do know that we should be not making any of those circumstances illegal. Arna, what about you? How do you envision a world beyond Roe? Um, yeah, I think that it's super important to know that it's important to, you know, save Roe. It's also important to keep progressing and ensuring that we're getting more intersectional as we go and making access more easier. Because um, even with all of these years with Roe, we've seen the gaps in reproductive healthcare and the access to reproductive healthcare. Um, and also just like, you know, from a point of like, from my own experience, I think like educating the youth and like making sure there's more comprehensive sex education and more emphasis on reproductive healthcare education is super important because when we are envisioning a future, it is our youth that are going to be like the part and the leaders of that future. So I think that education is a super important part of it as well. Thank you. So this is Amplify Women on X-Ray FM. I'm your host for this hour, Lindsay Sadlu. And in celebration of International Women's Day, I'm joined by three of my friends, movement partners, colleagues, um, talking about the future of abortion. So polling shows that 80% of Americans agree that Roe v. Wade should remain the law of the land. But a morning consult poll in December found that only 40% of registered voters believe that Roe could be overturned. The Supreme Court is expected to decide the outcome of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in June. So getting back to our beginning, I wanted to bring in the words of Mariama Kaba into this discussion. So how can we practice hope as a discipline leading up to and in the wake of this impending SCOTUS decision in June? I, I love the framing as hope as a discipline because I think that the world is really difficult and has been especially tough over the last two years, right? And I think it has felt like a really relentless tide of a lot of really big stuff that individuals and their families have been dealing with in their personal lives, but also on the national landscape and on the global landscape, that's all very true. And so I think that hope as a discipline to me is an active choice and an active practice of holding your values and believing that you can um, build a world in partnership with the people in your movement and in your community that you all deserve and that you all need. 
And I think that the only people who really profit from our despair are those who are actively and have been actively trying to continue their oppression of us. And I am full of spite in addition to hope, and I refuse to let such individuals prevail. And I think that leading up to the to a SCOTUS decision, I think holding what is true, which is that it took us a long time to get to the Roe versus Wade decision, and it took a lot of organizing and movement building, and also it was imperfect. So as we are looking forward, we need to be as organized, as disciplined, as hopeful, and as audacious with our vision of what the world should be looking like and being in movement, in organization, intersectional, um, centering the communities that were left behind. So BIPOC communities, um, queer, trans communities, in the original second wave white feminist um, reproductive rights movement to push beyond that. If anything, this has really shown us that that limited scope and view was too flawed. It was not visionary enough. It didn't bring us to where we needed to be and we need to push beyond that. And so those are some of the things that I'm holding looking into the next year and beyond um, of not just salvaging anything, but actually like breaking ground into a new space with my friends on this call. Agreed. And also, yeah, like safe, legal, and rare is not awe-inspiring. Like that's not a feeling I want to rally around. (laughs) Arna, what about you? How is hope manifesting in your life these days? Um, I definitely think, you know, just as a person, it's harder for me to have hope just because I feel like, um, I can be fairly pessimistic, or actually I should say in this state of our current society, realistic. Um, But, you know, I think it's just, it's actually really great to be like on a campus such as like NYU's, because I feel like a lot of the students here are doing a lot of the work to, you know, for reproductive justice and for like being more progressive. And so I think that having hope to me is just continuing to do um, the work I'm doing and to like mobilize and mobilizing more young people um, so that we have that kind of, you know, people on the ground doing that work. And that gives me hope that like things will get better and that, you know, we will be fine because there are so many people who like believe in the same cause and the same movement and we are putting in the effort. So I feel for me that hope is just, you know, being active, doing the work um, trying to do more projects or rallying more people or, you know, doing act like, you know, being like active on social media with sent- sharing those messages. Um, yeah. So for me, hope is just taking more and more action and kind of embodying that feeling. Kopana, will you jump in? Yeah. Um, so I am generally a pretty hopeful person. And um, I, I, I still retain that even in the face of almost overwhelming conditions, um, which could be my inner Pollyanna coming out. But, uh, and I, you know, like she's there, I legit own her. Um, but I guess for me, right, when, when Donald Trump got elected, I was like, okay, oh, we're in a 20-year reset. Well, it's now year five of that 20-year reset. and like. We have a lot. We have a long way to go. And what I'm thinking about is like, okay, what are the pieces that we need to put into place today? What are the seeds we need to plant today that are going to bloom in a year, 
in two years, in five years, in 10 years, right? Because again, in 10 years, we're only going to be at year 15 of this reset. So if that's where we are in a generational reset, then um, I got to be in it for the long haul. And I have to simultaneously hold my real lived experience of the fear and the anxiety and the oh my God, people uh, literally will not be able to get abortions in 26 states. Alongside the understanding at a very deep level that in every single one of those 26 states, there are a thousand people like us that are on the ground figuring out what to do. And I need to trust those people and deeply show up for them. Full stop. It's not my job to go drive to Idaho and pick people up and bring them unless someone in Idaho tells me that that's what I need to do. Then I will get in my car and we'll do that for sure. But I, I also want to remind us, right, to not get into our savior stance and to truly and deeply know that particularly in the South, folks and networks have been resourcing and getting people the abortion care they need. And they've been in this condition for over 20 years already. So rather than like immediately going to my, I need to learn how to provide an abortion. Cause I'll be honest, there's a part of me that feels like I need to learn how to provide an abortion today. Instead of letting that lady take over, I need to um, really deeply trust the folks that are doing this work in those other places and back them the heck up. And to me, that's about dropping the money I can. It's about making sure that I go get all my other people that are feeling their, their need to save everyone and actually remind them that there's, there's leadership on the ground that needs to be supported. And that's our job is to support it. And then really thinking about long-term, what's the conversation I'm seeding here locally in my community to ensure that all of the Oregonians who don't currently have access, because there are still a lot, are actually part of the conversation to move forward. That was such an organizer response and I love it. Like, what if we all just didn't carry the weight of the world on our shoulders and trusted each other and ourselves enough to know that we got this. And I love that you're shouting out um, our movement siblings in the South. I want to shout out ARC Southeast, the uh, um, abortion fund, um, the Yellowhammer fund, T fund in Texas. There's so many amazing folks working on the grounds, making sure that with the shoestring budgets and resources that they have, that people can access abortions and get the care that they need. Something that you said that I want to bring to our other panelists is planting seeds. This is a generational fight. I think I really needed to hear that this morning and I might need to get you to record. You know what, we're recording this. So I get to re-listen to this whenever I need a pep talk. Um, you're welcome world. What seeds are you planting? What seeds are we planting for the next five years, 10 years, 15? This and I'll I'll say seeds that I want to be planting right now as an organization and in our organizing work are deep conversations. Like just deep conversations on the doors to be talking to communities about everything that's impacting them and also having deep conversations about abortion and reproductive justice and rights. I think maybe I'm feeling that especially as we're in this moment of high polarization. Uh, misinformation, disinformation, and also COVID, right? And we have just like the, phys the physical sort of in-person connection, community connection um, has been well, like dampened significantly. And I think that 
the high rhetoric of anti-abortion folks flourishes um, online and where can we crack open doors and opportunities to engage people um, in real conversations in ways that intersect with their lives. Yeah, I completely um, agree with Anne. I think the seeds that I want to be planting, kind of like, you know, I've said before, is um, mobilizing my peers like more and more because I feel like this is the kind of fight that I that young people need to be involved in even more. Um, obviously, I have my podcast going. Um, it's called Jordy Talk, and it's still going. We're still recording episodes. Um, and I feel like that's something I'm really proud of, and I hope to keep going. Um, and I have a few other like projects in the work with like collaborating with some of my other peers. Um, but yeah, I definitely really want to start doing more organizing surrounding reproductive justice and doing more like being on a college campus. I feel like that gives me a great network and a great platform, um, especially one as big as NYU and in a city such as New York City. I feel like that can be really impactful. So just, you know, connecting with my peers and my network and really mobilizing is what I'm hoping to be doing for the next four years that I'm here. That's super exciting. And let's continue to be accomplices in the fight, Arna. Yeah, this is Kalpana. I um, appreciate, you know, everything that Anne and um, Arna have shared. I think that for me, the seeds I want to plant right now are really radical seeds. And I think what I'm curious about, what I have an appetite for right now is about, okay, we tried it this way for like 40 years. It got us, it got us some places, but how easy was it to take out, to take us out? Well, now I want to go to more radical places. So I'm, you know, how do we demedicalize the knowledge so that it's restored in community and practices are based in community and in individual families. And we have all of the, the record keepers and the story keepers inside of our communities to understand how do we decriminalize so that we are not um, punishing folks? How do we build the support that's going to be needed for folks to be able to determine for themselves what they want, right? Like that's not a, that's not just me culpana going, deciding what I want. Like I need a lot of information to decide what feels best for my body. Where am I going to get it from? So for me, the seeds I want to, I want to plant right now are, are considerably more radical than the ones I've wanted to sow for the majority of my career. I'm just ready to go blow some stuff up watching my radio voice and my don't swear post it so thank you x-ray coconut let me drive the getaway car i'll be there i think all of us will be there this has been such a wonderful hour to spend with you folks thank you so much for this conversation today y'all you've been listening to amplify women on x-ray fm a celebration of international women's day Thank you so much for having me as your host. I'm Lindsay Sadlu. Stay tuned through 7 p.m. for the Amplify Women Teach-In.